Well, again, welcome. Glad that you're here this morning. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church. My name is John. This is the first Sunday of Advent. And as we enter the season of Advent, we are going to talk not just about the first coming of Jesus, the Incarnation, but also the second coming of Jesus. And over the course of the Advent season, and then three Sundays beyond that, seven Sundays total, uh, we are going to try as hard as we can to apply the second coming. If Jesus will come again, what does that matter for our lives? What I'd like for us to be doing over the course of these seven sermons is I want you to hear us describe, again, this is Jake and I that will be bringing to you these sermons, I want you to hear us uh, describe uh, real struggles in life. But as you hear these struggles, we'll do our best to speak as transparently as possible. This morning we're going to talk about that feeling of purposelessness in life. But as we uh, do this, I want you to listen carefully for how the second coming of Jesus makes all the difference. His first coming, to be sure, but the expectation of his second coming is actually practical. So we'll be looking at passages that uh, highlight uh, struggles in this present age that we feel as Christian people, and we're going to apply the second coming to those struggles. The passage for us this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12. It says verses 1 through two, one and 2. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The subject we'll be looking at uh, this morning, as I said, uh, is uh, purposelessness. Uh, do you feel as though you have no purpose? The next week, uh, we're going to ask if you ever feel overwhelmed. And for that, Jake will lead us in Jonah. A week after that, have you ever felt forgotten? Have you felt alone? Have you felt like you're losing the battle? Have you felt distracted? Have you felt like you just don't care? That's, that's the subject matter uh, for these various uh, sermons. Little theologians, thank you for being here this morning. Glad you're here. This passage is about running a race. That's pretty easy, isn't it? So draw a picture of a man or a woman running a race. But I want you to know that this passage is not really about running a race. It's about struggling to run a race. So when you draw someone who's running a race, draw the hard part of running. The tiredness, the sweat, the pain, the slowness. They're not winning the race. Draw the struggle of running a race. Again, our passage is from Hebrews uh, chapter 12. We'll look this morning at verses 1 through 3. Would you please join me in prayer, first of all? Father, thank you for making yourself known. By your Holy Spirit, would you give us understanding? By your Holy Spirit, would you employ me for the purpose of explicating and illustrating and applying your holy word? And again, thank you for speaking to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of our Lord. Well, you heard it, didn't you, in this passage? It's a passage about a race. But twice in the passage, verse 2 and verse 3, there's a reference to endurance, the hardness of the race. As some of you here this morning, uh, you became Christians as adults. That was uh, true for me. And I wonder if just before you said yes to Jesus in the gospel, you thought how wonderful this Christian life, if it's real, might actually be. Did you entertain the notion of what it might be like to live as a person who is not bound by their sin and their guilt? To live as a person who has true peace and true happiness. Were were those images that uh, were uh, soul-stirring to you as you contemplated becoming a Christian? In my case, I certainly did imagine that, how wonderful this Christian life might be. But I didn't wonder or imagine how difficult that Christian life might be. Again, those of you who were converted as adults, did you? Someone is sharing the gospel with you. Did you imagine how difficult this life would be? If I say yes to Jesus, I am introducing all kinds of persecution and hardship on my life. My popularity is going to go down. All of those bad things that people uh, hear and promulgate about Christianity, those bad things Well, they're going to be about me. And if I become a Christian, there's going to be the kind of awareness of sin that I've never had before. And that's going to be a point of struggle. Before you became a Christian, did you imagine how wonderful that Christian life might be? Maybe so. But did you imagine how difficult that life might be? Isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ so beautiful? That a proclamation of the gospel is an invitation to a wonderful relationship with Jesus, but also the proclamation of the gospel is an invitation to a life in which uh, the world will be trying to conform you unto it, a life in which the devil is going to try and, and grab your heart, a life in which you will struggle with indwelling sin. Isn't the message of the gospel so beautiful? This passage this morning, it's about the ordinary Christian life. But it's about an aspect of the ordinary Christian life that we don't often talk about. And that aspect is endurance, suffering, struggle. This passage is about the ordinary Christian life that requires endurance and requires endurance all the way to the second coming of Jesus. Now... 
Before you think, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, that that's not the life for me, just wait. Just wait. And the reason we have to bring up endurance in this passage, and this is where we're beginning, just that very concept of endurance. Let's, let's start there. If the ordinary Christian life requires this, what does this passage tell us about endurance? Well, I want you to know something about the church that this letter is addressed to. We don't know exactly who the author of Hebrews is, but we do know that it's addressed to, uh, cr- to Christians in Rome. Here we've been spending time in Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel also is addressed to Christians in Rome. This letter was written later than Mark's gospel, likely later than Mark's gospel. But there's a few things you need to know about what it was like being a Christian in Rome. You know, this church that the writer of Hebrews is addressing, you know this church is about the same age as our church? Covenant Presbyterian Church has been around for around 30 years. And that's how old this church is that the writer of Hebrews is addressing. And about 15 years ago in the life of this church at Rome, uh, there was an emperor named Claudius who expelled most Christians from the city of Rome. That was 15 years ago. So uh, for us, that's like about 2006. 2006, let's say, two-thirds of our people lost their property and were forced to leave the city. Two-thirds. And then uh, over that 15-year period, since the year 2006, uh, every year we would see some people uh, slowly return and start all over again. They didn't get their property, but they returned to start all over again, rebuild their lives. But most didn't. You just didn't see them again. 2006, that happened. Those of, uh, of us who were left alone during that persecution, those of us who, for whatever reason, we, we didn't lose our property, we weren't expelled from our city, and it could be because we didn't quite uh, look Jewish enough, or it could be because we had friends in high places, or it could be because we somehow managed to talk our way out of it, or it could be because for just a moment, We denied that we were Christians. But be that as it may, here we are. We stayed and we lived on the other side of that persecution. But imagine, this letter is addressed to Christians who, uh, in that congregation, as they're hearing, some people in that congregation, they have new neighbors living next door to them, but they remember the previous neighbors. They remember their Christian brother or sister that lived in that house. Right there, they remembered that. But they're not there now. They were expelled. That wasn't very long ago, brothers and sisters. And it was still felt in this congregation. Now that was 15 years ago. There's a sense in which all of that just gets erased because one or at most two years ago, there was an enormous fire in Rome. Maybe you heard of it. It took place in AD 64. And the fire burned for more than a week and two-thirds of the city was destroyed. The average Roman citizen's life In fact, the average Roman occupant's life was completely overturned during this fire. Lives were devastated. Homeless people 
refugees living in public parks, disease spread through the city of Rome, a makeshift law enforcement was busy protecting the citizenry. Now, it would be a decade, a decade and a half before the city of Rome would be returned to functionality. And nobody knew who was ultimately responsible for that fire that took place last year or the year before. But suspicions were all over the city that Christians were somehow responsible. And in fact, it was a socially approved idea to hold that Christians did this to us. Last year, the year before. Well, welcome to the church at Rome. Is your mind's eye there? Are you imagining uh, the kind of suffering that these Christians would have endured 15 years ago, but still feeling the effects of that uh, last year or the year before, before? And no one doubts the effects of that. And throughout Hebrews, there are references to suffering, especially the suffering among Christian people. Everyone knew what it was like to be persecuted because of their profession of faith in this particular church. Do we know that? Do all of us know how that feels? But they knew. And you find these strange expressions in Hebrews, particularly towards the end of Hebrews chapter 10, of, of Christians who seem to be enduring just a remarkable hardship, uh, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. They're uh, caught up in the affliction of their brothers and sisters such that even if they aren't thrown in prison, they know people who are thrown in prison. They had friends who were persecuted right before their eyes, and they had property that was plundered right before their eyes. They knew it by experience. 30-year-old congregation. And yet it was still there. I'm not sure that we've experienced anything like that in our 30 years. We're still here, praise be to God. And how much can we take as a congregation? We have everything we need to take exactly what the Roman church took. Because for Christianity, endurance is the name of the game. This is what we do as Christians. We're enduring. The imagery of this passage is about running a race, right? It's there, running a race. There were athletic events during their time as there were athletic events during our time. It's a very practical illustration, running a race. And we know what that's like. We've seen that on TV. Uh, they would have experienced these events. And the truth be told, we actually rather like this imagery of running a race. Life is a race. Isn't that a pretty metaphor? Sounds poetic. Sounds like a good song. Life's a race. We always think about this race in personal terms. Uh, it's my race for my goals. Uh, I have dreams and aspirations, and I'm trying to achieve those. I balance those. Some days are hard, some days are good, but I have this plan. I'm running a race. We give ourselves all kinds of allowances that if we uh, aren't uh, running towards that goal, we just shift the goal, and it just still becomes a, it's a race. It just becomes a different race. One plan is just swapped out for another. But the whole imagery of life as a race is really comfortable to us. And it might be comfortable because we're always thinking about our own race. 
But God's race is his race for every Christian. And God owns us in Jesus Christ. He has paid for us and he has set out our race for us. And he tells us that we are arrogant to assume that life is all about my race and my goals. So the first thing we need to understand about this imagery of uh, running a race is that this is not your race for yourself. It's God's race for every Christian because your life is not your own. That's the first thing we need to notice about this imagery of running a race. But the second thing is this. Notice that this passage is about running a race and not about running a race. It's about running a race because the phrase is there. But it's not about the race as much as it's about the suffering of the race, the endurance in the race, the hard part of the race that nobody actually talks about. When we think about a race, we think about that great victory. And we think about uh, you know, barely trundling across the line and, and maybe we're vomiting at the very end, but the race is the race. But this passage, it's about all of those gritty moments over the course of the race. It's about the hardness of that race. And what the writer says about the hardness of that race is really important because of what we've already learned about the Roman congregation. These Christian brothers and sisters have suffered much. And the fire in Rome and the blame that's coming their direction, it doesn't look like it's ending anytime soon. And they're suffering They're in a race as Christian people called to be Christians professing faith in Jesus, but that faith is being wrought by the circumstances of the world. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is he's saying, you know what, Christianity is all about that endurance. And that's where you want to go right now. Christianity is a matter of endurance. This is the second point. The first is just endurance in general. It's not about a race, it's about endurance. But look at what the writer says about the circumstances uh, of this uh, endurance. He says that uh, when we're running a race and uh, when we are striving and struggling in that race, there's something that surrounds us, there's something that's on us, and there's something that's before us. Surround on before. You may not see this immediately, but uh, you you see at the beginning in verse 1 that uh, the writer says that even though we are enduring in this race, we are surrounded by something. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, don't think too quickly that this is a, a great, rousing, cheering audience for you, as if you're running a race in the middle of a, of a grand arena, and this is the audience cheering for you, applauding for you. I'm not sure that's the best way to read this passage, because what does a witness do? A witness is a person who has a testimony. A witness is a person who has a message. And that testimony that these cloud of witnesses have, we're told about them in Hebrews chapter 11, by the way. The the testimony, though, it's it's not a crowd of people in the audience who are like applauding for you. It's a crowd of people in the audience who are really applauding for God. They're testifying to his goodness that, uh, yes, there was suffering and struggle, but God was with me all the way to the very end. And not only that, I know now, this cloud of witnesses is saying, I know now that it was all worth it. Because this crowd is described in Hebrews 11, and it's about a people from the Old Testament who believed in the gospel, 
Don't think that, you, that only New Testament figures believe in the gospel. In the Old Testament, these are figures who believed in the gospel, but they, and they, they placed their hope in the priestly ministry of Jesus, but they actually didn't get to live far enough in the timeline to see the birth of Jesus, to see his suffering on the cross, his resurrection and his ascension. They believed, and they endured hardship for that belief, but they never lived to see the first advent. They died too soon, but they see him now. And the cloud of witnesses is actually a living, a living crowd of people, and they're testifying to the goodness of God and how the suffering that they endured was real but worth it. Their testimony is to you and to me as Christians endure. It'll be worth it. Endure. So this is what surrounds us. What's on us? A different preposition. You know, a, a runner would, would show up at the starting line and they would drop their clothes. I don't know how many clothes they would drop, but they drop a lot. Why? Because they don't want to be encumbered by their clothing. The, the focus is on that race itself. And so they drop them to run the race. And that's the imagery here of laying aside every weight. You know, we often think about endurance in terms of what we put on. I'm curious if you've, if you've ever thought this as a Christian. When we think about endurance... When we think about uh, uh, being faithful when it's very hard to be faithful, we, we tend to think about those things that we need more of, like uh, we'll go to passages like Ephesians 6, the whole armor of God. I need more truth, more righteousness, more peace, faith. And that, obviously that's not incorrect, is it? It's right there in the Bible. But that's not what the, what the writer is doing here. The writer is not saying that there is more that you need to put on. The writer is instead saying that you actually endure by taking off, by laying aside things. If sometimes we think about uh, our holiness as uh, growing by putting things on, getting better and better. And we think about uh, taking off, stopping our sin is almost a secondary project, less important, perhaps less desirable. But there's something that's taken off, and that taking off in order to endure is sin, it's hard to tell what he means by sin. If you look at the context very broadly, you go to the end of chapter 10, and certainly for the writer of Hebrews, a part of that laying aside as a means of endurance, part of that sin is just your lack of confidence. He tells us repeatedly to not shrink back, to not deny God. Part of the sin is just fearfulness. Why are you not enduring very well as a Christian? It may be because you're just riddled with fear. And the writer tells us to lay that aside as you're enduring. It may be uh, something beyond fear. It may be bitterness. If you skip forward in Hebrews chapter 12 to verse 15, the writer uh, refers to a bitterness or the kind of uh, resentment or envy that you might have as a Christian that's undergoing persecution. You might envy the pagan world because they're not struggling. They're not saying no to their appetites. And the writer might be saying, uh, let go of not only fear, but let go of that envy and resentment that is so often clinging to the Christian life. There might be a third one as well. If you look at verse 16, 
Again, Hebrews chapter 12. We're jumping out of the context, but we're asking the question, what am I taking off? The sin of fear, the sin of resentment. Verse 16, how about the sin of sexual immorality? It's interesting that sexual immorality would uh, actually be here. Sometimes we think about sex as uh, simply a a private matter for which I just deal with that uh, on my own. And really, it's not the kind of thing that I really need to, to be rid of in order to live the Christian life. It's something that I can work on over time. But that's a dastardly notion. The writer is saying that the Christian life is, is filled uh, with struggle. And the endurance is so hard to come by as you are living this life up to the second coming of Jesus. And the things that you take off might seem pretty minor. Your fear, that one feels major. We feel afraid to be a Christian in this life. But the bitterness, the envy, the resentment, lay that aside as well. But even sexual immorality, that is something that clings to you in a way that makes it hard for you to endure the Christian life. All of these things matter, and these are the things that need to be, uh, that are on you, that need to be uh, laid aside. When we think of enduring for Jesus... We don't search for these things in our heart, do we? Fear, resentment, sexual morality, but we should. Are you worried about persecution? Worried about the state of the church today? Well, think about your fear and resentment and sexual morality. Look, we're a Presbyterian church. We often think that uh, the way to make it in this life is to read lots of books It's always putting on, I need to learn more about this or that. And that's true, we do. But I want you to consider that what the writer is saying uh, is this, that your endurance, yes, it is about knowledge and about learning, but your endurance, it's also about this, confessing your sin. Seeing and confessing your sin. It's so hard to be a Christian right now. There are all kinds of cultural forces all around me. It's so very terrible. I have no idea what's happening in the life of the church. Would you confess your sins? Acknowledge that you're afraid? And you shouldn't be. Acknowledge that you are envying the pagan world, and you never should. And acknowledge that you are subject to your appetites in such a way that sexual immorality is almost not even on your radar. It's a given. There's something around you, a testimony of witnesses, there's something on you that needs to be laid aside. But there's also something before you. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. You see how he's described there as the founder and perfecter of our faith. These two, these two words, they don't show up uh, together anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, the second one doesn't show up uh, anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, but they, they really work together. The, the founder is the author. Uh, this is, uh, in many ways, uh, the leader of the race. If we're sticking with that imagery of race, the founder is the leader, the, the one out ahead. And the perfecter is the one who is the accomplisher of our faith. And using that race imagery, uh, he not only is our leader, uh, but he is the one who is perfecting everything we do in that race. There's something surrounding us. There's something on us. But Jesus, he is before us. 
Now, I want you to stay in that race imagery, and I want you to understand that Jesus is the founder and perfecter, but as you go from this place, I want you to also understand that Jesus is the cheater. You heard right. We so often think that we're running a race and Jesus is way out there and uh, he is good and glorious in every way, shape, and form. And my job is to live this life in such a way that I reach him. But Jesus, he cheats. He doesn't follow the rules of the race. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, but he's not static. He comes to you, runner. He meets you in your struggle, you runner. He guides you, you runner, and he perfects your running, you runner. He's cheating all over the place. Yes, the ordinary Christian life requires endurance, but we have Jesus Christ and he's with us. You see, Christianity is brutally honest. Christianity tells us that it is difficult to live in this present age. To think about running a race is so hard because I want to run my own race. And rather than endure, I want to set whatever race that makes me suffer, I want to set that race aside. And Christianity is so honest. We think that our purpose in life is all about living a better life, the life that God intended for his creation and reaping the spoils of that life in this present age. Doesn't, doesn't that sound strangely familiar but strangely wrong? Christianity is not interested in making our lives easier. That's hard to hear. Life is hard as a Christian, but Christianity is a matter of partaking of that great cheater who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who comes to us, guiding us, and he perfects everything that we do. And finally, let's, let's stop here on not me running the race and struggling through that race and laying aside my own sin. Let's end with Jesus and his race. That's where the writer takes us. If we doubted any of this at all, we're commanded, actually. That's why I included verse 3. Consider is a command. We're commanded to not just look at, but to thoughtfully consider the endurance of Jesus. He endured the cross the writer tells us, that the physical excruciating aspect of the cross he endured. But the writer doesn't want us to think that uh, Jesus uh, didn't suffer prior to the cross. The writer says this, that Jesus not only endured the cross, but he despised the shame. In Jesus's entire life, he understood the view of the world with regards to him and the kind of death he should die. He knew that he would die the most shameful, embarrassing kind of death that the world could concoct. He knew this, and yet that shame meant nothing to him. Not a problem. Jesus, he endured the cross, the writer tells us, but he also despised the shame of that cross his entire earthly life. And then again in verse 3, He endured hostility, hostility from sinners, those people out there, but hostility from sinners like you and I. And he endured this hostility with every day of his earthly life. 
We started by looking at race, uh, the race is having uh, the, the, the aspect of endurance, and that's the focal point. And then we looked at how we are to endure in our ordinary Christian life. And then we come to, to stare at and marvel over the endurance of Jesus Christ. But let me comp- conclude with this question. Why all of this reflection? Why all of this reflection? I know that Jesus is not merely an example to be followed. He's more than an example. Jesus is the substitute for my sin. He is the only one who could atone for my sins. He's more than an example to be followed. But this writer seems to be saying that he's not less than an example to be followed. The purpose of the Christian life is to profess Christian faith and to endure in that faith to never give up, to never deny Jesus, even to the point of our own death. That's the purpose of your life, Christian. And it may sound like it's not the kind of life that you signed up for. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you might think that I just made your decision for you. I'm not signing up for that. The purpose of the Christian life is to profess faith and to cling to that faith to endure and never give up, even to the point of death. But the Christian life is not a life that's lived alone, is it? That Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That Jesus showed us what it looked like to give all of your life to the will of the Heavenly Father, to endure everything in that life. And the writer of Hebrews says this, says that Jesus endured that because of the joy that he expected. It's the season of Advent. Jesus has come. And in our lives as Christians, we forget that. Yes, he's come, but it's just a dot on the timeline. But he'll come again. And the joy that you experience right now may be fleeting. It may be rare. But the joy to come, well, It casts an enormous shadow over your life right now. Your life right now is a life in which you are expecting the joy to come. Jesus is not just sitting and waiting. He is with you today. And as you suffer, he is near you. He knows how to use that suffering. And as you think that you are running the race, you're not. He is leading and perfecting that race. He's always with you. And there will come a time when your fleeting sense of purposelessness will never be remembered again. Because Jesus, he will come. And when he does, all of the endurance, all of the battling against sin, all of the trying harder and harder and harder to lay aside that sin all of the fighting against the hostility of the world, all of it will vanish. Christian, he will come again and the purposelessness you feel right now will be full of purpose. You'll see. Well, welcome to the first Sunday in Advent. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for coming near to us. Thank you for your long-suffering, patient love for us. Thank you for not forgetting us. Jesus, thank you for coming and for coming again. 
in your name. Amen.